Pop Quiz. What do the episodes Dear Doctor, Time and Again, and Homeward have in common? Actually, the episode I am most reminded of is a Voyager episode called Alliances, which I usually list as one of my least favorite Voyager episodes. Not at the level of threshold, but it's definitely getting there. Now, you're probably thinking, why? If you remember, when I went back through Voyager and I was reanalyzing Alliances, the weirdest thing is it was actually a decent episode right up until the end, at which point it pissed me off so hard that I left the episode infuriated. This episode's actually kind of the reverse of that. It pisses me off, and then the rest of the episode is decent. I can't give this lamentation status in good conscience. It's actually not a bad episode. It's just, it makes me want to strangle some of these people. So let's just jump into this. I want to talk about two things real quick, uh, behind-the-scenes things. So... This is yet another, hey, here's a family member that just kind of comes out of nowhere. Now, in fairness, we actually did know Worf had a brother. It was mentioned all the way back in Heart of Glory, season one. But they never named him, which is funny because, you know, that some people were like, uh. In some of the books, they actually came up with a name for him before, you know, this episode came out. But anyways, Nikolai here uh, is finally, it's showed, and it's like, okay, there we go. We, we've got his brother finally on camera. A lot of family episodes in season seven. Then there's Sorvino. Now he's the gentleman who plays Nikolai. He's the he's the guy who plays Work Brother. He was a decently like he, he wasn't exactly a big name Hollywood star, but he, he was not exactly a small name either. Now he had expressed interest in starring on Star Trek. Now, what's funny about this is by multiple accounts, this was an extremely common thing. Lots and lots of Hollywood stars would say, man, it'd be cool to be in Star Trek. And when the time came and they'd be contacted, ah, we're busy. I can't, can't hash out a contract. Ah, sorry. So <laughs> by season seven, this whole thing had become kind of normal. And in fact, this would actually carry forward into Voyager as well. But every now and again, someone would actually commit to it. And so I believe Taylor specifically called up Mr. Sorvino and was like, hey, and he was like, yes, absolutely. And he made time and he made room and he pushed it into a schedule because he really actually did want to be on Star Trek. I think that's kind of amusing to me because, you know, Sorvino in real life is exactly what Nikolai is supposed to not be. You know, the whole flighty, never taking responsibility thing. Anywho, <clears throat> so, I, where do I begin? Um, you know what, let's talk about the episode first, and then we'll talk about the Prime Directive later. Does that sound cool with everyone? Okay, so, let's just kind of skip over the first, like, five, ten minutes of the episode. Um, first the thing, I do want to mention, they go down and they get this surgery done. Question, why don't they just use, like, holographic disguises or something? I mean, surely that tech exists by this point. I know it's not going to be perfectly useful in every situation, but for something like this? Like, I, I know this sounds like a strange thing to comment on, because in real life, all that happens is Michael Dorn has a slightly different makeup call. So from a real-life perspective, a surgical alteration's a joke. But I want you to picture exactly what goes into altering a Klingon so that he doesn't look Klingon every time this happens, or turning other people into Klingons, which is another thing that happens periodically. Again, in real life terms, it's just a change of makeup. I say just. You know what I mean. 
it's something that can be done with relative ease and some time investment. But why do they always do search? Anyways, moving on, moving on. It's just something that's bugged me forever. We do, however, find out that Cassidy Yates is here as she is attempting to join the infiltration. I like to think this is where she started her experience, her career, basically. Like, she was a member of Starfleet Intelligence sent to watch, you know, Mr. Roshenko, and and then she fell in love with him and had a child with him, which is, I'm, I'm not sure how Cisco's going to take that. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess Cisco had a child without her, so I guess he has no room to talk. Hmm. Anyways, uh, so I'm just going to skip through my notes on the first few things here. Hang on. Okay, so then we get to the main thrust of the episode. Now, let me just go ahead and say that uh, I keep wanting to call him Sorvino. They actually call this the Sorvino switch, this tactic. It's actually referenced over an insurrection. But uh, Nikolai's plan here is actually freaking brilliant, in my opinion. This is such a. This is actually where the episode really works for me. In fact, this is so cool that this is one of those. Oh, this is a perfect use of the holodeck kind of situations. I keep pointing those out when they use the holodeck intelligently because they usually don't. Now, I want you to remember that because <clears throat> Jerry Taylor said, and I quote, uh, Renee Echeverria came to me one day and said he'd gotten the pitch idea about idea of transporting people from a dying world onto the holodeck and fooling them into thinking of their sass. I said, Renee, are you crazy? That's not even credible. Get out of here. Anyways, so this is an extremely credible and very logical idea. And is a, is a perfect outcropping of the holodeck technology. In fact, if you're paying attention, the only reason that anything goes wrong is because of the fact that they had the, the whole plasma leak problem, which was causing the holodeck to malfunction. If the holodeck hadn't been malfunctioning, no issues the whole episode. Now, uh, I actually think it is legitimately brilliant the way they use this. This is a combination of a person on site to manage the situation, people monitoring it carefully, the holodeck itself, which is doing the bulk of the work, and actually, you know, stellar cartography and transportation. It's basically using a lot of the different technologies and operations of the ship in an intelligent manner to relocate people. Now, relocation is not something that should be thought of as a regular thing. Obviously, I, I don't want an American Indian situation. But this is, this is a little different. This isn't, we want your land. This is, you're all going to die. So let's push you to someplace new where you can live. Um, I, I hate to dib, dig into the Prime Directive thing a little bit, but if they had been walking into this environment, into this situation, with this mindset, they could have done this properly. They could have already had time and, you know, there's this bit where Data and Crusher are looking at the planets and they have to make the best choice available because they have so little time to work with. If they had actually walked into this prepped, they would have already done all the research on what the best world to relocate them to be would be. Because remember, it's not just about is there a breathable atmosphere. There needs to be animal life. There needs to be animal life that isn't going to absolutely destroy them. You know, it can't be Australia. It needs to be plant life that they, that is edible for them. The, the soil needs to be arable. And there's, there's all these little details about how settleable a place is for people who have the technology level of tents. <laughs> right? You know, huts. This is, this is what we're dealing with here. So you need, to, you need to take that into consideration. Now, they don't because they have the time limit, but they could have if they'd done this in advance. They also 
could have done this. It, the episode posits the idea that when you're being transported, you're not aware of it. Which is funny. I think uh, I think Lieutenant Barkley would disagree with that. But regardless, I suppose they could just be like, eh. But this brings me to something, and I have to point this out. I, I know that the episode needs some kind of dilemma. So the holodeck malfunctioning does make a degree of sense to go on that. It's a little cliched, but whatever. And I do like the way they kind of work the, the malfunctions into the narrative. That's kind of neat. I like that. But I have to point out, Jordy flat out says the way to fix the holodeck is easy. Shut it down for a few hours, do the repairs, and pull it back up. Why don't they just do that while they're sleeping? Well, what if they wake up while they're sleeping? Drug them. No, seriously. Pump some, some sleeping gas into the room so they all pass out. So they are all knocked out, and then do turn the holodeck off, do the repairs, and turn it back on. Boom. I, I'm actually a little astonished no one even suggested something similar. To, at least walking around with a hypo spray to people out would have worked, but no. Whatever. Moving on. So that's actually the only real threat of the episode right there. Is, is the fact that the holodeck's malfunctioning. Everything else, because that is the, the thrust of all of the dilemma for the entire episode. It's why Voren gets out. It's why the people are freaking out. It's why they have to adapt on the fly. It's why they have a ticking clock. And again, I, I get you, but it's a dumb dilemma because it's so easily solvable. I just came up with one option off the top of my head. I'm curious how many other options you guys can come up with to fix this. I'm sure there's several. Anyways, <clears throat> I suppose I shouldn't mention that we know people can be held in transport stasis for a little bit, too. So they could just beam them out, leave them in the transporter for a couple hours, and beam them back. What? Scotty showed them how to do that, and Scotty managed that for, what was it, 70 years? <laughs> I think they could manage two hours. I know, I know, he did lose the other guy, so it's not a perfect solution. But again, there's a difference between 70 years and two hours. Anyways. So... Worf gets really upset at uh, at Nikolai, and that's something I'm going to get to in a minute. But then Worf is talking to Vorin. Now, this is actually kind of neat. First of all, Worf just kind of awkwardly stumbles his way through this, but he does actually come up with an interesting concept. Verbal history. This is actually a real-life... I don't want to say problem, but it is kind of a problem. There are real-life cultures who had, i got to use past tense here, verbal history, verbal pass-down of knowledge and chronicles and whatever. And so from a historical perspective, as an amateur historian, I can tell you that actual professional historians have been consistently frustrated with trying to come up with the closest thing to an approximation of what actually happened with regards to several cultures, because it was all spoken. And there's a billion problems with that. I know, I know, written history isn't exactly perfect either, but it's usually considered more credible than, well, I, blah, 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 right? Nevertheless, it is interesting that he brings up that alternative. Voren, of course, then speaks of the Chronicle, and there's an obvious, you know, the past is important to him thing going on. Good setup. It is good to know that Dr. Geiger here is uh, beginning his career as, okay, I'm sorry. So the guy who plays this guy, He's the same guy who played Dr. Geiger over in uh, in the cards, which was right before the end of Season 5 in DS9, right before the Dominion War. Literally the first the episode right before it. He also played Sulan over in Voyager, the, the Dian. 
he also played the guy who the Vidian stole his face, which was also a nice touch. I just wanted to point it out because he's kind of a good actor and he does some good stuff here. Anyways, <clears throat> he does do a good job with his role because when he finds out, he manages to portray a very good form of panic. Most actors, when they're told, you know, you are panicked, they start flipping out and flailing and screaming. And that is a valid response. But in my experience, real panic is quiet. Real panic is when your system basically just straight up locks, locks down and you have trouble functioning because you are so afraid. Because your system, your mind cannot process what's happening. And that's exactly what he portrays. He's someone who's just kind of walking blindly and then he gets more and more and more into the corner and he's shaking just a little bit. And he looks at them and he's, does, he's not like wide-eyed. It's more like he, he doesn't know what to do with his eyes. He's just staring at him like, Rabbi, you know, good job. That actually is awesome. This is another reason why, even though the holodeck situation is so solvable, I can forgive it. This is a cloud effect situation because some good stuff comes of it. He does a good job of this. Troy does a good job here. I'm a friend of Ni I'm a friend of Nikolai, a friend of Worf's, and that makes you my friend. And that means I'm not going to hurt you. I promise. I am not going to hurt you. And she uses the connecting point there to try and reach out to him, to establish something that she knows, he knows, to establish a point of sanity in what's going on in him. It's very, it's very well done. It's excellent. This is, Naren Shankar wrote this episode, and he actually does a very good job of, with most of it, and this is one of the reasons why I'm willing to give it so much slack, and why I cannot give this lamentation status, because there's some good stuff here. He... Then ends up on sickbay, and Picard talks to him, and he's like, yeah. So, And you get the impression, because there's this little bit when Picard walks over and Troy says, here he comes now. You get the impression Troy has basically been talking to him nonstop this whole time. You know, like, come on, let's get off 10 forward, let's walk down the corridors, let's go to the sick bay. And you could just tell she's just been talking to him and keeping sure that he hears her soothing tones. It's okay, there's nothing actually wrong. This is a little bit out of your expertise, but this is something we need to explain to you. And this is going to sound weird, but I think he takes it... I don't want to say he takes it well, but I think he takes it correctly. This is, in my opinion, a good presentation of what someone would actually react in these circumstances. Congratulations! Uh, your world is dead. And we saved you from it by bringing you to our ship. You weren't supposed to find out we were here. Sorry. But now that you know, well, now it's your choice. You get to decide what's happening here. Now, this then leads to uh, Worf uh, arguing with Nikolai, which has been the whole episode. Now, this is going to sound like a weird point, but I'm grateful that Worf has a clear blind spot for his brother. I've actually talked about this concept several times in fiction, where someone just... They don't think the, the same way they usually do when it comes to a certain person because that person's a blind spot for them. It just provokes them or hurts them or affects them in some way, usually emotionally, so they don't think straight. I have people like that, and I'm sure most of you do as well. Worf and Nikolai both clearly have a blind spot for each other. As Worf says, it is an old argument. And I point that out because otherwise, Worf's just being a dick. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. He is being a straight-up dick. He actually blames the Voren situation on Nikolai. I feel like pointing out once again that if they had planned this all out in advance, this wouldn't be an issue. So you can't really blame this on Nikolai. 
And the fact that you're trying to blame Nikolai for unexpected circumstances that develop as a direct consequence of something that nobody could have foreseen, at that point you're just finger-pointing. <sighs> Anyways. <clears throat> so, um, this is when we find out that Cassidy, Cassidy Yates, is pregnant with Worf's brother's child. I wonder what what that makes the relationship between Worf and Cisco. Okay, in the off chance you you don't get it yet, the woman who plays Cassidy, I don't actually remember the actress's name, Patricia something. No, that, that's Patricia Talton's the other person who plays her. Uh, it's uh, Penny Johnson. Penny Johnson plays the woman that is uh, that is his wife in this episode. Anyways. <clears throat> I'm a little surprised at that. One of the things I've mentioned before is how I like the idea that medical technology is basically necessary for cross-species, you know, impregnating. So, he's a human. <laughs> In fact, I'm actually curious, can his surgery, does his surgery to, to alter his face need to be maintained? Or is that like a permanent surgery? Did he get a permanent surgery before he went down? Actually, while we're on the subject, did did they leave him any technology at all, like anything, a com, an emergency comm device, you know, some way of connecting with his family back home, anything? No, he's just gonna rough it in the wilds with people who haven't discovered indoor plumbing yet. I'm pretty sure that would be tough, tough for people now to deal with. Now imagine all the technology and convenience of the future, and then think about it. By the way, this is another thing to consider: diseases. Another thing that could have been done properly if they walked into this prepared. So, Vorin pulls what I call the dirt argument. Now, I don't mean to sound dismissive. It's just, it makes no sense to me. You know, he says, I, I say, I, actually, let me take that back. I'm not sure he's pulling the dirt argument. I assume he's pulling the dirt argument. Because it sounds like he's saying, we have lost everything that made us who we are. No, you haven't. You've still got your people. You've still got your chronicles. At least some of them. I know history is important to you. That's cool. I'm with that. Um, what did you lose? This is why I call this the dirt argument. Because the only thing he lost was the dirt. Now, I know, I know. I don't get it, and I don't want to be dismissive of it. I understand that there are some people who have an attachment to a geological location. You know, home, right? Now, I understand the concept of home, even though I've never had one. But the idea of that is a very powerful one. So I can kind of like intellectually understand someone having a strong identity focused on a location, a place, right? So I kind of get why he's so upset. But at the same time, I mostly don't. Like, your home is gone, dude. Would you have rather we let you die? Because that's what we were going to do originally. I'm not getting into that yet. Not getting into that yet. So then he commits suicide. He, now, this is actually an interesting way for the episode to go, in my opinion. Also, I just got flagged on YouTube for saying that word. That is so stupid. Suicide. So, the, <laughs> just to make sure, he commits suicide because he couldn't reconcile the choice that was uh, being put upon him. He didn't want to be distanced from his people. He didn't want to go into this brand new, undiscovered country. He didn't want to tell them the truth because that would either screw with their ability to think properly if they believed him or brand him as a madman for the rest of his life. 
but he didn't want to lie to them either. It's actually a pretty good dilemma, and it works surprisingly well. Him killing himself, well, again, is actually pretty realistic. As I said, they did a good job of portraying what someone like this probably would actually react to, given the circumstances. It is still a damned pity, I will absolutely admit, and I'm kind of with Picard. It would have been nice if, you know, he had served as kind of a bridge and there could have been the very beginnings of cultural contact with these people. Instead, Picard takes credit for our plan for him. I'm not even going to get into that yet. Um, so then, so, you know, Nikolai stays behind. Worf takes one of the Chronicles. What? Isn't that like a big, important thing that everyone, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh, is that everything? I think that's everything about the episode. All right. So I hate this episode. You know why. I I come across as anti-Prime Directive a lot. But in the interests of total reality, that's not actually true. That's more of a simplistic look at things. I actually am firmly in favor of the idea of the Prime Directive. I really am. Uh, it's to avoid imperialism. It's to avoid the second type of colonialism, as I've talked about it before. You know, we move in, we take you, you now ours. It's trying to avoid that. I'm with that. I absolutely completely agree with that concept. Of course I do. I'm pretty sure most sane people would. That is really bright. Is that affecting the green screen? Sorry, just all of a sudden there's this sunray of doom right over here coming through my window, and it's usually not. I'm not sure what's changed. I have to throw a curtain up on that in the future. Anyways. <clears throat> but yeah, this, I, I'm, I'm with that. Absolutely I'm with that. Of course I am. Why wouldn't I be? Again. So that I am in favor of. But the problem is, well, Nikolai actually says it flat out in this episode. I am dishonored because I don't follow Federation dogma. And that is the problem with the Prime Directive. It is treated as a sacrosanct religious rule. Not faith, not belief, religious. As if this is the prime uh, directive, you might say. As if all other priorities are secondary to this one, which is actually a concept I disagree with firmly for many, 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 many reasons. So, the, I mentioned those other episodes, right? Time and again. You're not to warn these people. That's an order. No argument was given. Janeway gives no argument in favor of the Prime Directive other than you don't know the consequences, also known as everything ever. You don't know the consequences of doing anything. You can predict. You can guess, ju guesstimate. That is really bright. You can just sort of presume, but you do not actually know the consequences of action. You don't. That's just life, Captain over in Dear Doctor. We should not interfere with the natural evolution of these people. Yeah, pro tip, evolution, you, you do not by definition evolve into uh, extinction. That's not how that works. It's not how any of that works. The, the very, I, I'll get to Dear Doctor when we get there because we are covering Enterprise uh, in 2021 actually, pretty soon now, now that I'm thinking about it. It's the next show we're looking at alongside TOS. But, anyways, getting back to the point. In Dear Doctor, as I will discuss later, they basically argue in favor of genocide. In, 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 until, into falling the fact we should not interfere. It is not our place to interfere. Okay. Now, on this, I can get where the 
the pseudo-intellectualism of that argument comes from. But it is the same argument as wandering down the road and you see someone who's in help, who is in danger, who is like injured or bloodied or whatever, and you just keep walking. Because that is what the Prime Directive is being applied as. That's the dogma that is pushed. It is not your job to interfere. Leave them alone. This also comes up when it came to... I actually ranted about this back in Redemption, if you'll remember. The Prime Directive forbids interfering with other cultures. What? No. <laughs> you do foreign affairs all the time, Federation. That's just interaction with a foreign power. Now, we, I actually saw a lot of very valid arguments on my thoughts on the redemption thing, and I will actually even agree with, with some of them. But the long and the short of it was that was also a misapplication of the Prime Directive. Point in fact, I'd have to really sit and think about a good application of the Prime Directive. I really would. Because I'm not sure I can come up with one off the top of my head. It's usually applied as, nope, screw you, like it is in this episode. And if I'm getting worked up about this, it's because this legitimately pisses me off. It especially aggravates me because what happens... Pay attention. Picard and crew... So, okay, first what happens is Nikolai is brought up to the ship and he says, Hey, yeah, so um, I've come up with a plan. It'll give them a temporary amount of atmospheric protection on the planet. Okay. They immediately torpedo that. Why? Because we absolutely must do what we are told to do by the Prime <laughs> No argument is given. None in favor of letting these people die. The only thing that they say is the Prime Directive. And that's their argument. Pointing to a line in a book and nothing else. And that's what pisses me off. It's the same thing that happened in Time and Again. There's no actual discussion there's no deliberation. There's no, well, maybe we should do this because blah, blah, blah. Instead, it's, we absolutely are not going to, to violate the Prime Directive. Even Troy brings up, we must follow the principle of the Prime Directive. Oh, that's right. What is the principle of the time Prime Directive? Us not becoming a violent, exploitative, colonial empire. Okay, so that's why we're going to let these people die, because we just don't know. We can't trust ourselves with the power to play God. And that's why any time when a distress signal comes in, we just wave and say, Hey, sorry, I can't be trusted with the consequences for helping you. Bye. Enjoy your terrible death. Bye. That is what they're arguing here. I want to stress that. Except what they're arguing is actually worse. Because rather than an individual or a group of people, this is an entire planet. They even mention that they are basically... Nobody actually brings this up. It is mentioned twice in the episode that they save one village of people. They could have saved all of the people on this planet if they prepped for this, if they were ready for this, and they had done their, jo their damn jobs in advance. Instead, they showed up and said, Yeah, what's the problem? Oh, the whole planet's going to die. Okay, let's watch. Oh, that's quite a show. Ah, yes, they're all super dead. They literally just stand on the bridge and watch a planet die. I, I'm actually shaking. I'm so angry here. This is the antithesis of everything I believe in as an individual. 
This, this is so aggravating. I want you to comprehend this, that the people we have been watching for almost seven years now were totes coup with just standing around and watching untold millions perish horribly when they had the power to save them. And that's important to remember. This isn't a tragedy. This isn't, oh God, if only we could do something. This is, we must stand by and watch. I heard someone once argue that this is the medical perspective, that that's what's being applied here. I should explain that really quick. Um, uh, actually, of, of all things, Scrubs described this better than anything I've ever seen. Um, you know, doctors giving them news that their patient died. And the doctor's giving that news to their family. That family is not going to go to work that day because they're not going to be able to cope with that. The doctor, well, he has to go right back to work. That's the medical perspective. There's a degree of detachment that you professionally build into yourself as a medical professional, especially when you're in something like ER or uh, I forget what it's called, but the response services when you actually go on site with, with techs in order to deal with you know issues and problems and disasters and whatnot, um, which uh, one of my uncles was involved in that career. I can't think of what it's called right now. <sighs> Maybe it's just emergency response. I don't know. Anyways, isn't that what ER stands for? Point being that the medical perspective, you know, you detach yourself. And the argument is, well, these people have to make decisions about the Prime Directive every day. So, obviously, they just look at this like, yep, and they just detach themselves from it. It's not like they really don't care. That's not the point. It's just they have the professional detachment. Uh, I call bull on that. The point of the medical professional thing, the whole medical detachment thing, is so you can keep doing your job in trying to save as many lives as possible. It's there for when you can't. It's there for when you fail, because you will. There will be times when you lose patients, or you can't help them, or you can't prevent whatever's happening to them. And they will lose a leg, or they'll lose their sight, or they'll lose their life. And the medical mindset, that whole thing, is to help you cope with that so you can keep doing your job because you've got work to do. That is not even applicable in this situation because that's the key part. These people have the technology, the power. They arguably had the time to fix this situation. They didn't, they won't, they don't. That is a choice. The equivalent would be if an ambulance stopped on the side of the road and saw someone and they had the power to save that person and they just stood there and watched as they died because that's what happens in this episode. If the Federation had done its damned job, they would have been able to have ships with holodecks ready to save all of the people on this planet. They would have already done surveys and sent out science vessels to find a new hospitable planet for these people. They would have mapped out exactly where each village would have to go. They would have experts already who would integrate it into the villages in order to allow them to shift into their new society and to, to, to be there on hand in case anything goes wrong. They would have had all this prepped and ready in advance. They would have started doing this when the storms had just begun. Instead, they only find out about this situation because Nikolai sent out an emergency distress signal and was desperate enough to try and save one village because they wouldn't let him save more. How many other people died in this episode because they stood 
and watched. I need to check something on my calendar really quick. Uh, where are we at? Where are we at? So this is... Looks like it happened back in November. Yeah. So this is now December 21st is when this episode should be going live. Back in November, I covered Spider-Man Homecoming. And in that episode... In that episode... In that movie, there was a tidbit where Parker says, when you have the powers, I do. And you deliberately choose... Actually, I think this is in Civil War. Now that I think about it, this is even before that. When you have the power, I do. And you deliberately choose not to do that. You are part of the problem. <sighs> sorry, I'm sorry for ranting so much. I really am. This just disgusts me on so many levels. For years, I've actually used this episode as like the er example of why I hate the Prime Directive. In time and again, it's actually not a main focus thing. And they end up kind of being into it, and then it never happened to begin with. In Dear Doctor, the Prime Directive doesn't exist yet. They're just arguing in the, the base morality of it. And there's other things that, like I said, I'll t we'll talk about that next year when we get there. So I'm pretty sure we'll hit that next year. It's like season one, episode 13, I want to say. So pretty early on. But this episode, this one pisses me off more than any other. Because this is the most clear-cut, we have the power to help, we had the power to help, we deliberately choose to stand by and watch. And this is the best part. When Nikolai forces the issue, they're like, okay, You've terminated your career. So, I just saved hundreds of lives, is what I just did. <laughs> I mean, honestly. Also, what career? He's, he's, whatever, let's not get into it. I, I'm just... I'm blown away by this. I really am. He effectively does the, the incorrect thing. I'm not sure how to define that. He does something... Let's put it this way. He does the moral thing, which is illegal in order to force the situation so they have to help these people. And it works. It usually does. Because now it's a problem. Now they're on the ship and Picard can't just go down with a phaser and go... I mean, he could, but... You get why forcing the situation was actually the right call in this case. I don't blame him at all for what he did. The only thing I blame is the Federation for being set up in a way that this is considered acceptable. You know... There's one other way I could have accepted this. Let's rewrite this episode a little bit, okay? Let's say the Federation, the Federation Council, uh, maybe the division of... I don't know, what division would that be? Research and observation or, like, cultural studies? Maybe it would fall into the foreign department because this is technically a foreign affair? Some department of the Federation has in place a hardcore addendum to the Prime Directive rule, which specifically applies to uh, pre-warp civilizations that are in an uh, extinction scenario, okay? You can't tell me this hasn't come up before. It's come up at least once on this show. So they have a proviso specifically for this, and it basically says stand and watch, okay? So Nikolai is under that branch, because he's here 
this would be their purview, right? He's here watching uh, pre-warp civilization. It's the same branch that would have been dealt with uh, back in Who Watches the Watchers, for example. That that division of the Federation, okay? And so he reports in and says there's this storm brewing, and they report back, okay, you're going to want to get off there soon, so make sure you collect all your material and equipment because they have a proviso for this. Now, th then he reaches out to the Enterprise personally because he knows Worf is on it. He sends the signal, and he appeals to Worf and to Picard and to the crew of the Enterprise. And Picard looks at the situation, and he can't deal with this. Remember, Picard is a moral person. He made a big stink of that back in Pegasus. Remember? Morality, right? His first duty, that comes up there. He does this in Insurrection, for God's sakes. So the idea here would be that Picard, and well, I shouldn't just put it on Picard, but the crew as a whole would deliberate on the situation, but they'd all decide... Okay, I get why those rules are in place, but this is unacceptable. These are real people down here who are about to die. We can do something to help them. So then it becomes the crew's plan, not Nikolai's plan. They bring them on board. There's some tech issues. Voron gets loose. Dilemma of the episode. And the episode concludes with, rather than, you know, I mean, Worf and, and Nikolai kind of reconciliate, but the episode concludes on kind of a note of, we're going to take this incident back to the Department of, of Stupid Heads, or whatever they're called, and reach out to them and be like, this is what you have mandated, and it is wrong. This law needs to be changed. Because, like it or not, that's actually how a representative republic operates. Laws don't just change on their own. You need to bring up uh, examples. You need to bring up case studies. You need to show why a law needs to change. This, then, becomes their push their weapon, their tool, in order to try and alter this plan going forward. Maybe even end the episode on a high note. If you really want to, push that, instead of at the end of the episode, push it forward a little bit and get and, and have them, you know, maybe have them mention, you know, we're, we're already talking about maybe in, implementing long-term protocols to help these kind of Sorvino switches in the future so that this problem never comes up again, so we don't have another Vorin incident. You know, basically doing the thing they should have been doing to begin with. This, in my opinion, would have helped the episode drastically. It still makes the Federation as an organization complicit in what is effectively a horrible thing. It removes the crew from this complicitness because they refuse to go along with it. And it posits the possibility of change in a positive manner so that this incident will not happen again. <sighs> what do you guys think? I'm sorry for getting so upset. Like I said, this is the worst Prime Directive episode, in my opinion, of, of all of them. And I think I give my reasons why. So this one really gets my blood boiling. And it's a damn shame, because other than the first, like, ten minutes, it's actually a, a fairly good episode, which I really enjoyed. It was good to see Sorvino. He does a good job with his role. Of course he does. Good fellows, you know. And uh, Dorn has some good chemistry with him, and the two bounce off each other nicely. And it's good. It's good stuff, and I like it. Other than the fact that it pisses me off. I hope you guys enjoyed. Such as it is. Uh, next week is... Next week is Sub Rosa. See you there, guys.